Okay, welcome everybody to today's session of the Economic Society podcast and what a session we have for you today. We have representatives from one of the more economic focused blockchain games out there as well as our very old all the economist and CEO. So without further ado, guys, let us welcome our guests, Lisa Tan, Michael Wagner, and Chris here on stage. So hello guys. Um kindly introduce yourselves for our audience for those who don't know you and just some little fun facts about who you guys are and what you do. Go ahead, Jump in there. Yeah, thanks. Uh, hey, everyone. Michael Wagner, co-founder and CEO of Automata. Um, that is the studio behind the development of Star Atlas. I'm super excited to be here chatting about economics. As you said, we have a, a deep emphasis, deep focus on building not only entertaining gameplay, but one that is uh, financially rewarding and economically sustainable. Uh, just in terms of fun facts, I, I share these a lot, but I, I come from uh, a really nerdy background. Uh, going back to high school, a computer group called the Lanarchists. This is back in the local area networking days where you're lugging your CRT monitors and big towers around. Um, uh, you know, we spent we spent our weekends eating pizza and drinking Mountain Dew. But uh, it was really through uh, that someone within that group of friends a couple years later um, that I got introduced to this idea of cryptocurrency and Bitcoin through script coin mining. So been in crypto for about 10 years. Uh, I've seen all of the ups and downs. I've seen all of the evolutions. And it was, uh, I've launched two companies in the space with Automata being my second. And uh, it was in mid 2020 that the the idea, the vision for Star Atlas came to us. And it's been a, a really exciting run. Go ahead, Chris. Why you need to introduce yourself as well? Yeah, awesome. Um, I'm Chris, uh, Chris KS. Uh, I'm the head of game economics at Star Atlas, uh, so I work very closely with Michael. Um, I just now found out just how old Michael is, so that's good to know. I'll, <laughs> I'll certainly use that uh, against him in the future. Um, yeah, my job is to is to is to make sure that we have a sustainable uh, game economy. Uh, obviously, as we know with blockchain games, the game economy and the real kind of real world connection economy are, are very very intimately linked. Uh, so my job is to try and. Uh, nuance those things uh, so they they make uh, you know a better game and a better economy for everybody. Uh, something about me, uh, you know, finished my PhD uh, or in the middle of my PhD is actually when I started getting into uh, uh, into uh, gaming space in general. But then, uh, yeah, more heavily into the blockchain side of things. Uh, so, you know, I, I I like to think I'm relatively involved with the community. Uh, run a po- have a podcast with a couple of other guys uh, on game game economies and. Uh, yeah. So very excited to be here. All right. And now I guess it's my turn. So I founded Economic Design and I've been in the space for six years full time. The The thing that inspired me to the space was actually um, two things. One was that I think games are going to be the future of how we do natural, natural experiments of how incentives could lead to and can impact user behaviors. And games are the perfect way to experiment with that. And I love that. I hope that in... 20, 30 years time, we have enough data so that we don't have a zero interest rate crisis again or lower bound interest rate crisis again because we have smaller natural experiments to play with. And I think that can add a lot of value to the physical world that we live in. And that's why I really love the games industry because it's just the world's best natural experiment. At the same time, I came into this space because uh, it actually started with arguing a lot of people because back then everyone used economics as two things. One is to 
say that, oh, this is the most economically sound thing because we use this economic theory implemented in our white paper. Look, there's economic theory in there. This is the best solution ever. This is the best project in the world. And there was obviously a whole lot of skip. And I went in and started arguing with people and say that this is not how you build things. You know, if if this variable is a dependent variable, you can't just flip it around and say that that's an independent variable. And then you can manipulate your different incentives or your different token model, token quantity in the space. Just doesn't work like that. But people didn't understand. So I remember the first conference that I gave back in London in 2018 was what is economics? This was a what is crypto economics topic, but I spent most of the time talking about what economics is. I'm very happy that today we have people specializing in this field and I can have very nerdy chats with, with the, the big minds in the space and I'm super excited. The other thing about crypto back then or, or economics back then is that always oh, just all game theory. Yeah, we just have all the strategies in place. You just use game theory, you can figure out how people work and you can solve basically the world's most hardest problem. But life also doesn't work like that. There's a lot of experiments and I'm very excited to be digging into a little bit more of data analytics, especially when we have on-chain information because we can understand that a little bit more. Fun fact, when I was in high school, I actually wanted to be a pro gamer because back then, in like back then MapleStory was a big thing and everyone, at least everyone in Singapore back then was playing MapleStory. And there are people specializing in MapleStory and they make a lot of money selling all the virtual assets. Then I thought to myself, yeah, I don't have to study. All I do is just play games, understand how to play the game, win the system by beating the rules of the game. And then you, you can be a pro gamer and you can live your life like that. Yeah, I didn't go down that path, but that got me into figuring out, well, game logic is actually really complicated and there are actually proper economic models behind them. And that was fascinating, got me into the space. Great. Thank you. Thanks so much, guys. And yeah, I realized I forgot to introduce myself. My name is Enzo. I'll be your host and moderator for this chat. Uh, I'm a blockchain economist. I work for economic design as well. And since everyone's giving their fun fact, my fun fact is that MMORPGs are actually what led me to economics. I really loved the, and was really fascinated about how people could, like what you said, Lisa, sell these digital items or real world currency. But at that time, blockchain was still not present. So in this episode, actually, it's interesting because we can combine the theories and the economic frameworks that you mentioned earlier with people who actually have experience building out these models. And probably the first question that for you guys today is basically what are the similarities and differences in like building traditional video game economics these web two economies to that of building a blockchain game economy and probably uh michael do you want to start with this question i'm happy to i think uh chris is would probably be able to provide a a response with a bit more depth but just I, i'm maybe just as a segue over to chris i would just mention that the well we see one of the biggest advantages in Web3 as being this open and, and I guess I would say permissioned, but in many ways permissionless capability of monetizing time that you spend in the game, as well as being able to trade assets freely. Now, I grew up playing a ton of MMOs myself, but there were always these inherent restrictions and it was a violation of terms of service to sell a character or sell gold or sell loot from the game. And we're really... Uh, transforming that paradigm to one where we, we not only make it possible, we encourage it. That is the foundation of what we're building is saying, you, you're committing your time, your energy, um, and your own capital to this. You should have true ownership over that asset. But let me, let me turn it over to Chris. I think he probably has uh, a bit more to say on it. Yeah. I mean, obviously the list of similarities and differences is, is quite large. Um, some of the 
So going back to the MMOs, I think one of the biggest differences is switching costs. So one of the things uh, you know that that we know about traditional MMOs is that it was kind of difficult to get people to switch from one MMO to a new one. So if you were coming out with a new MMO, one of the hardest things was just that switching, uh, overcoming that switching cost that the players faced when deciding, do I have to, tr you know, I've got all these assets um, in, you know, World of Warcraft. Do I really want to go and restart in EVE Online? Now, I'm not suggesting that blockchain technology allows us to transfer all the assets from World of Warcraft to EVE Online, but what it does do is it introduces a completely different uh, paradigm for MMOs uh, by reducing or completely removing, in some cases, this switching cost. So that to me is one of the biggest differences from a kind of a marketing uh, revenue operations point of view. Obviously the similarities, you're still trying to create a closed, you know, sustainable economic loop. Um, we have seen web two gaming economies collapse because they didn't have a good game economy. Same thing for web three game economies. So similarities are that we're still, you know, we're still trying to create sustainable gaming economies. Um, differences are obviously a whole slew of of technical aspects i had a third point but i completely forgot it i think one of the things that is very similar it's creating your own laws around it just like just like what michael said as well because we don't have to live by the same physical constraints and structures that we have in the physical world and you can have different kind of buildings and land that goes many layers down under or it grows sideways and it just goes against the entire logic of how things are being built and that on the design side is a very interesting technical challenge. I'm not a visual artist, so I don't know how that works, but I know that's a challenge on its own right. But from an economics perspective, that brings up the the new ways of how we can structure incentives and how we can play around with mechanisms. And I think the difference on that side is that because there's interoperability, because we remove the switching costs, you can move assets in and out of the system that creates a different kind of complexity. There's so much customizability there is so much opportunities of where your assets, your tokens, your user could behave, could move around. It increases complexities by many dimensions. So I think that's that's where excitement also comes in because saw that Web2 games are easy, Web2 games are also difficult, but Web3 games have a different level of complexity, which is just a very fun challenge to try to overcome it and try to figure out solutions around that. And I think that's, that's where a lot of economic new incentives, new mechanisms lie. And I'm really excited to see how this space will grow in the next 10 years. And Elisa, I just want to add, like, you mentioned complexity in terms of these game economies. Do you think that's also the biggest roadblock in terms of developing a Web3 economy compared to probably a traditional MMO? I think the biggest complexity would be, as what uh, Chris said, is the switching cost, really the interoperability, because you could move your assets from one ecosystem to the other. And if an interoperability is the core concept a core principle in a lot of crypto ecosystems be it infrastructure bridging eigenlayer staking DeFi, and also with games what i don't know yet is how does inter how does assets move between games how does it impact the game flow the game logic the content eco the content economics and then the economics of the system the incentives how do you take a lightsaber from a star wars game into another like a minecraft kind of game where and especially where these IP are UGC, like user-generated content, how does that work on the legal level, on the legal side, on the operational side, before it goes to the economic side? I, I think that needs to be solved first before we can talk about the economics degree of this interoperability, which is going to be a big challenge. And Chris and Michael, is that something that you guys experienced while building out Star Atlas 
and these Web3 game economies? Or is it something different altogether that you would say is the biggest challenge or roadblock in building out Web3 economies? I would maybe start by dovetailing on Lisa's um, uh, comments around interoperability. And I think, you know, there there are a number of challenges with respect to interoperability outside of economics. And, you know, that would start with just things like technological um, uh, limitations that we have today. So we're starting to see some of these bridges across protocols um, uh, come into form, but it's, uh, it's still a challenge to standardize uh, the the transfer of these assets. And then also we've seen a number of compromises on bridges. There's a degree of centralization required in a lot of cases, a custodian of sorts to hold the proxy asset while they distribute on a new chain. So I think we have a number of challenges on the technology side before we can really um, uh, uh, like unroll this world of interoperability. For us in particular, there's challenges in uh, asset quality. You know, For us, building out this AAA quality game with best-in-class uh, graphical fidelity, you don't necessarily want to take a Minecraft pixelated, you know, 8-bit sword and move that into into Star Atlas. So you would need to transform the uh, the item itself to be uh, appropriately suited for the environment that you're operating in. I think where it gets interesting with the economics or challenging with the economics is really the economic alignment with these other parties. You know, it, as creators, as builders, you have monetization strategies that rely on things like asset sales. That's a major component of what it is that we do and how we generate revenue today. And so to the extent we're allowing for multiple assets from external environments to enter into our world, that is a dilution of asset value of sorts, right? Now there's potential upside there too, because if you can attract users from multiple environments into your world, then um, you can potentially outpace growth, uh, outpace dilution with growth of the user base, right? Um, uh, I, speaking personally, though, for us, and kind of again on that uh, initial point of technology complications, we're pioneering development across um, all of the bleeding edge, leading edge technology that's out there. That's building mechanics and logic that live directly on the Solana blockchain. It's working in Unreal Engine 5.2, you know, getting early access to the game engines that are still in experimental mode themselves. And, and so I think challenges that we've had in the economy are less economic focused. It's it's really about being able to build the core product first. And then, you know, we have the expertise of Chris to come in and help ensure that everything's balanced and functioning properly. But it's difficult to do that when you're looking at estimates and projections when we don't necessarily have the full product online today. And understanding that there's going to be multiple iterative releases of this through time um, and and we'll constantly need to be rebalancing and adjusting based on that development roadmap. Yeah, I think okay, that's okay. Great. Point. Uh, just a quick note. I think Michael, you make you make a very good point because that's something I'm noticing in a lot of projects. With every any project, Web two or Web three, you need a product first, and then you need at least some form of community, and then the main economy, first stage of economy, which is completely iterative, is to start driving user acquisition then you can improve the economy and uh, improve the product, improve the tech while focusing on user retention after. A lot of people just go head first into the economics where you have no product, you have no idea, no business model, no revenue stream, no community. And there is no point talking about complex economic system, talking about user retention or more acquisition, because what are users going to come to your ecosystem for? There's nothing to do, nothing to play, nothing, no value to create, no value to add. 
And I completely agree with you. It, it needs to be product first, community, and then an iterative com economy that keeps improving based on the changing market structure. Yeah, and that's very much like what makes my job very easy. Uh, I think a lot of people think of uh, the job of you know of the 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 economist at these companies as being extremely daunting, and it is because you have to make pretty big decisions. But we also have the you know this. Um, advantage where we've been, to, to, you know, we have tons of data uh, from the last two years based on our player behavior. And every time we make a change, it's relatively small. And we're able to very, you know, in a very controlled manner, understand what happened, how can we use that to make our next decision. So for example, we released a uh, product not too long ago called Escape Velocity. And this was just a test of some on-chain mechanics. But just that test of on-chain mechanics gave us a whole bunch of information about player behavior uh, in terms of when are they online, when are they offline, how often do they, how much do they play, what's their intensity look like, uh, which wallets are actually entering the ecosystem, and and how can we use that to make a bunch of really helpful decisions in terms of uh, the next iteration of our of our game. So, you know, I think that this uh, this iterative approach, like it's. It's caused it because of the technical challenges of first of all building on chain, but also building out a very robust like video game. Um, but it actually is kind of beneficial to me because it means that I get to do things as we go. Uh, we have plenty of time to analyze, plenty of time to implement the new strategy. And Chris, I don't want I don't want to take us down this rabbit hole because it's an entirely separate <laughs> podcast. But we learned a lot about botting behavior too. And this is a very controversial subject in Web3 games in particular, really all games, but Web3. But uh, we learned a ton <laughs> about bots uh, through Escape Velocity. Yeah, that, that could probably be its own <laughs> uh, podcast, uh, botting in, in Web3. It's a super important problem. The only thing I'll say, just because the econ economics design people are going to kill us if we, uh, if we go too far <laughs> off track here. But uh, the only thing I'll say is that the threat of, of monitoring is a very powerful anti-botting tool. I, I'm not obviously we did have anti-botting um, mechanisms in place, and we, we had a way of dealing with it. And we had a way of identifying bots, but just saying we're going to crack down on bots is a very powerful tool. So you know, for for developers out there, keep that in your uh, in your tool belt. I have a lot of things to talk about anti-botting. We will definitely have another episode and just nerd out about about anti-botting, especially on monitoring, because I think it's a very interesting topic. I like that you talk about. Managing the economy is not just about just looking at money, but user behavior, online, offline, wallet behavior, because that's a big concept that I'm trying to draw into people's head. Even if it's uh, economy in games, it's not just about money. It's not about financial returns. It's not about getting how many tokens in the game, because if your focus, if your if the economic team just start focusing on that, that will be that impacts how users will want to play the game. It becomes play the game for financial returns and not because it's it's a fun game to play. And that's why product first and then economy after. Otherwise, you misprioritize your importance and people are coming in to extract value, extract right in the short term. There's no one creating value in the long run and this, the game just does not work. And yeah. this is one of the things in Web3. It's a lot easier to build a game for financial returns than playing, than building an actual strong game because good games take a bloody long time to build. And so to incentivize users and to keep users entertained while things are being built, there's a lot of financial incentives in the space. And that's a big challenge on how do you balance between getting users still being excited in the game while developing the economy and developing the game. How do you guys balance that? 
So I will say, like, just from uh, an empirical point of view, we've seen very strong, slow, steady growth, especially over the last month, month and a half or two, um, of kind of our our uh, the value in our economy. So uh, my I'm of the personal belief that, and you know, I don't know if Michael has an opinion on this, but the value of your economy is only as valuable as the people in it and how much they value it. So it's just a big summation of everyone's value for that economy. Um, you're going to have some whales, you're going to have some minnows, but ultimately it's only as valuable as it itself, uh, the value it's providing to players. Um, so it's interesting as we've seen escape velocity come out, as we've seen our, uh, we recently, what we call uh, the so-called liberalization of our resource economy, um, as we've kind of uh, done some of these, and we can talk more about that in a bit, as we've rolled out some of these product um, advancements and changes, we've just seen stronger uh, price action in the secondary market. So for example, the resources uh, that we kind of activated, those prices all went up two to three hundred percent, and that's funny because that's a problem that not a lot of Web three companies have right now. Where we're like, oh geez, like how do we how do we try to uh, you know balance this so that it's not so dramatic, it's not impacting people's gameplay decisions as much, or their or, or in the case of uh, some of our products, like their financial decisions. Um, but you know, I think that we've seen very strong growth as we've kind of uh, very collected. Uh, we've taken a very uh, collected approach to growing the economy, creating good sustainable loops, um, and you know, using that that experimental methodology I was talking about earlier. You know, what it, what worked, what didn't work, and how can we use that uh, in the future? Maybe just a quick quick comment on the uh, more of a, a macro perspective, which is really where you know my my analysis generally lies. Um, just big picture, but. Uh, I just wanted to comment on the the idea of the extraction based mentality. There's certainly been a lot of that, and that has been um, models that have been employed in the past that have pr proven successful for user acquisition, but also to their own detriment. Because you know, of course, these um, yield based gameplay mechanics that are unsustainable lead to the ultimate collapse of that economy. Um, nevertheless, I've been on a public tirade for the last year, telling people that play to earn is not dead. It's still a very viable model. Just because it hasn't been executed successfully in the past doesn't mean that that can't exist going into the future. I'm a, still a big believer of that and think it's one of the core value propositions that Web3 has to offer. Um, so when I think about balance across the economy in the long term, it is certainly critical that you have entertaining gameplay. That is the core essence of a video game is people are there purchasing entertainment and experience. Um, uh, but I think that you can couple the people that are primarily interested in gameplay as a consumer of product for people that are primarily interested in extracting value. And I think that's where we differ at Star Atlas is we're, and from any other game studio to that, uh, to that end, because we're not necessarily sitting in the middle and saying, you have to buy all of these assets from us. We're saying, here's somebody that's producing the assets and you're interested in purchasing them perhaps for convenience because you don't want to mine all the resources so that you can fly your ship around. You just want to fly your ship around. And uh, we just connect those people through our marketplace. And now the extraction-based interested party has an avenue to monetize their time by performing whatever uh, menial, tedious, or uh, you know something that they still enjoy doing, but they have an outlet for that. And it doesn't rely on us paying out. Now, we do have an emission curve as a subsidy, but nevertheless, it's really about uh, matching these producers and c consumers and where we sit in the middle is by being able to collect a royalty fee on these transactions. So kind of a, a form of taxation. And it's nice that you guys bring these uh, 
uh, because when developing economies, you mentioned, Michael, about different models in place and the execution of these models for economic design, actually, we, or Lisa has developed, Lisa has developed the framework that we use, which is basically a three-part framework. And Lisa, would you like to talk a little bit more about that? Since Michael, Chris, and you briefly touched, especially on the market design aspect already. But for our users who are not familiar with this, can you just maybe a quick two or three minute recap of what this framework is and what are the different parts of it? Yeah, absolutely. So when we look at designing economy, whether it's a, it's a layer one ecosystem or metaverse or a game, we look at micro, macro to micro level and it goes in three degrees. So the macro, macro, the first macro we're looking at is the market itself. So we talked, we touched a little bit about it. So understand the market structure, the changing market structure, structure, especially the kind of economic ages in there, the, the percentage of probability or distribution of extractors versus game players, versus investors versus casual players. And then looking at the behaviors we want to incentivize and disincentivize. Really, it's looking at if a game is like a country, what are the constraints in this country where people come in and interact in the country? So the market is defining what the constraints of this country is, what the country looks like, and how does the how's the country changing and shaping market structure as time goes. The second thing we look at, which goes one step down before we move to micro, is the incentive mechanism. And so in this country, there are rules that people have to abide by to play. We talked about rules quite a lot in, initially. And what are the rules? What do they look like? What can people do? What can people not do? And when we talk about rules, it's not just rules to govern what they can and cannot do, but look at governance, for example. How do you legislate that? How do you punish bad behaviors? We might not have so much of that in games at early stage, but in the future, once it's decentralizing it for governance in the space, then that is something to think about. And other things about, about rules and governance and rules of how people interact with each other is like auction mechanisms and how they price assets and how they trade with each other. Are there time-based rules, asset-based rules? What kind of rules are there to govern the actions and activities of how people interact with each other in the game? So that, that's all incentive, incentive to govern behavior. Lastly, that's the tokens itself. So the most micro level. Where people interact and trade with each other, they're trading something of value. That can be fungible, non-fungible, tradable, non-tradable. Experience points, kind of like a reputation point to an individual before you go to a PvP battle, is going to be, it's a non-tradable asset, but you still have to use economics to balance how you allocate the experience, what experience makes sense, how do you match them in a PvP battle mode. And that is going to be very important. Whether it's tradable or not, doesn't matter. Anything that is of value when people exchange is something that's part of economics. And that's why economics is not just about money. It's about the users coming in. It's about how users behave, the incentive, and even if there's some form of causality between the incentives we have and how users behave in the game can give us a lot of insights. And lastly, the assets they use to interact and trade with each other. So economics is a little bit more than just money and just users, but it comes into a couple of degrees down. I just want to say, I think it, and that's, it's a super valuable point because I, I don't think the public at large comprehends the uh, how extensive economic design is in gameplay you know i'm i'm on calls with chris and our game design team and and uh game design of course designs all the mechanics that they want to see in in uh, uh playable in the game but as soon as it gets down to the spreadsheet level where they're inputting numbers that impact the outcomes of whatever those activities are it's like that's where you know the econ team is involved in helping to to formulate the strategy so that gameplay actually feels uh rewarding yeah, I like to say that uh, we have two jobs in terms of interacting with game designers. The first one is, uh, as much as we can, 
uh, we, we come up with the numbers. So whether that's through like a complicated statistical model that spits out a bunch of numbers, or it's just through like a, sim a simulation or, or some sort of algorithm that I designed to spit out the numbers for me. Um, but then we ultimately input those numbers into a spreadsheet. Um, that's kind of the, the game design. They've got this, you know, their, their design. The second, uh, the second part is really with the, you've talked about incentive uh, mechanism design here. Um, it, it's to make sure that the system is incentive compatible. Uh, so there have been a lot of different marketing campaigns that we've done uh, that have an incentive structure or a mechanism design, and we have to make sure that those mechanisms are incentive compatible, meaning there's no exploits, meaning that there's no degenerative, uh, you know, kind of strategies uh, that sh that people should employ. And that's that's really challenging, especially when you're designing kind of new systems that have never really been explored before. Um, and the blockchain poses some interesting challenges and also some provides us with some uh, kind of support in order to implement incentive mechanism, uh, in incentive compatible mechanism design. So incentive compatibility is a thing in economics. And how would you explain that in normal terms for people who don't understand economics? And how does that look like in a games context? So it's kind of weird because um, from the game designer's point of view, I would consider something incentive compatible if the incentives in the game Let's say there's a monster that you should go kill and there's a level up scheme that you do in order to get better and be able to kill bigger monsters. That incentive mechanism should, it should be incentive compatible. And that means that you're encouraged to play the game that it's the way it's supposed to be, uh, be played. And it's very much the same in uh, economic design. Uh, when you're designing an experiment in experimental economics, for example, you always want to test uh, kind of the game theoretic solution to make sure that the design is actually incentive compatible. So if you think about like the prisoner's dilemma, the prisoner's dilemma is an incentive compatible uh, game. It means there's no degenerative kind of solution where the best solution, the best strategy for a player is to do nothing. That's not really a good game and it doesn't get at the objective of the game. So that's a non-incentive compatible uh, design. Now, this might sound like you're saying you're trying to force people to make decisions. You're not making people, you're not forcing people to make decisions you're just trying to make sure that they that the game exists. So incentive compatibility makes sure that the game exists in the most in the optimal strategies. You know, there's an optimal strategy that's not do nothing. Um, that's usually how I think of incentive compatibility. So let me try to explain incentive incentive compatibility in a non gaming context. So maybe uh, some of you might find it easier to understand. So imagine you're a teacher and you have a classroom full of students. And you want the students to do the homework and come prepared for class. And some of the students might copy people's homework or they don't want to do that. They don't want to do the homework. So incentive compatibility is to get to find a reason to get each of these students to do their homework without cheating or being lazy and just forget about it. So this could be something like giving them gold stars for doing the, the good work. And after you get 10 stars, you get to choose what is the what is the the song we sing today in class. For example, so in economics, that is incentive compatibility. So it's setting up the rules or, or incentives or mechanisms to get people, to motivate people to act in the best way for the group, regardless of what other people are doing. So don't cheat, don't take shortcuts. You want them to do the behavior you, you're incentivizing them to do. And that is the best for them personally as well. So it's basically a, a specific kind of game theory mechanism where you want people to do the best work despite of what other people are are going to cheat or not cheat. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you so much for those explanations from a gaming and from a 
normal side of things. And we really touched upon market design and we just concluded on mechanism design. Something on token design that I wanted to ask, especially the Star Atlas team, is that given that a lot has changed since the last blockchain gaming bull run, I think back in 2021, have, have you guys changed certain aspects of your token model? Or basing what adjustments has Star Atlas done given, the, given that we've had new learnings in the industry? And Mike, you mentioned a while ago that, like, you're, you've been advocating that later isn't then it's just been executed differently so probably with those lessons now available to everyone what finds are atlas basically adjusted in terms of token design and a whole token model in general michael or chris go ahead i can start here i mean ju just to be perfectly frank we've changed very little about our token model since inception um we put an enormous amount of thought into economics at the foundation of the company. And so uh, we, we understand that where our long-term objectives will require some volatility in the, in the mid and near term to be able to accomplish. And so I think to the extent that we have the, uh, the goal line in mind of where we want this to go, we've really designed for the longer term sustainability and success. Um, again, taking less consideration about near-term uh, variability in things like market structure, which of course impact us, right? The, the tokens are heavily correlated with crypto markets at large, which are in turn correlated with capital markets, generally speaking. And so, you know, based on uh, market sentiment, it, it certainly impacts uh, our tokenomics, but we're not necessarily concerned with that because that's just noise, right? It's just external noise. What we care about is how do we create the game in a way that we want to create it that incentivizes players appropriately and build towards that long-term vision. So we've changed very little. Uh, we do have you know Atlas lockers, Polis lockers, Polis the governance token. This is a, uh, a mechanism that gives, gives players voice. I think Lisa, you had mentioned how governance structures are an important layer. Uh, it also adds a significant degree of complexity because we as designers ultimately want to have guardrails on the game itself and on the economy itself. But it, but through this governance, we want to provide the optionality for players to influence the long-term outcomes and design itself. And so it's it's taking this gradual approach to enabling and empowering individuals to make those types of proposals and, and community at large to vote on that, and then making the determination of not only how, but when we implement those changes. Atlas lockers tied into our uh, marketplace um, through a discounted fee mechanism. Um, if anything, I would say we we also took a conservative approach to the emission curve. Uh, so this is the inflation of Atlas through time through being play mechanics, simply because we we are early stage in development and uh, we just wanted to be prudent in how those tokens get distributed until we get more robust game systems online. So uh, from day one, we had we were only distributing about fifty percent of the maximum emission curve through time. So that was maybe one subtle modification, but something that we acted on very early. Um, and otherwise, Chris, I don't know if you want to speak to this, but I, I think it'll come up later in the conversation, this idea of golden tickets. But one of the core mechanisms that we're using to incentivize players is the ability to earn additional assets as opposed to earning things like crypto tokens. Um, so not earning Atlas, but earning new productive assets in the economy. So. Um, I'll pause there, Chris. I don't know if there's anything you want to add to that. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think we'll probably touch on the the, the golden tickets uh, campaign uh, probably in a bit. Um, with regards to the different tokens and, you know, so, so we have three different types of tokens in the Stylus ecosystem. We have Polis, which is a cryptocurrency, Atlas, which is also a cryptocurrency, and uh, and our NFTs, which are ships and other game assets. We also have SFTs, but these are like resources and, and things that don't change. Um, in terms of the dual token system, I know there's kind of, in the last year, there's been some discourse on a single token system, dual token system, no token system. Um, and I think that all strategies are legitimate. Um, I think that there are different uh, designs that, that you know, it would behoove you to just have one token or maybe no tokens at all. You know, uh, there are a couple of games that don't have tokens. I think a lot of uh, new new games that are coming out actually are just using USDC. Now, for us, having Atlas was important because we wanted an in-game currency. And if you're a blockchain game, it only makes sense to have cryptocurrencies, your in-game currency. Um, my primary objective with respect to our tokens is stability. Um, you know, I think obviously everybody wants their you know token go up is great, but for me, long-term stable uh, a stable currency is is valuable. People want to be able to rely on the token. They want to be able to rely on the token's price know that you know within the star atlas, star atlas um ecosystem and outside the star atlas ecosystem the value of their their assets is going to remain relatively stable now there are going to be super rare items in our game that are ultimately going to accrue in value there's just kind of no way around this when you have digital assets this happens in web 2 games as well uh so from my point of view in terms of the token model I, there's nothing has necessarily changed but you know i think Nothing has changed. My objective is is stability uh, within the ecosystem. Now, going back to this double token model, um, the interesting thing about the, the the two token argument, I think it was basically, you know, there are liquidity risks, and you are you're kind of splitting your customers' attention between two tokens. Um, and I I don't see it that way. I see these as complementary goods. I don't see them as substitutes. So I I I see people as having a pool of, of uh, you know, spending that they're willing to spend on the, the Star Atlas game, and they're going to spend it on those assets. Now, if we have them buying ships, we have them buying Atlas, and we have them buying Polis, these three different gameplay mechanics, each one of these plays a very significant and very different role in our ecosystems. Uh, that's kind of how I see them splitting their, 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 uh, their money up across the different goods in our economy. Uh, so I don't see them as, as these kind of like competing tokens. I see them as two completely different things. And and indeed, we see them move in just completely different. They're, they're not actually very linked. I think yesterday, one was up, one was down. Uh, so they're, it's not like they're doing the same thing, uh, so to speak. Um, yeah, I think those are probably my comments. We we have a lot of we have a lot of optionality in front of us. As uh, Michael said, you know, we're we're below that uh, kind of maximum distribution curve for the token. So we have a lot of optionality in terms of new users entering the market, providing plenty of liquidity for them uh, so that they can hold tokens without, you know, the, the token price, you know, doing any sort of crazy stuff. Um, and especially with the NFTs, we have you know plenty of, of inventory. So we just have a lot of wiggle room, which is really nice when we're growing the economy. We can decide, uh, you know, ex post, oh, actually, maybe we want to make this change. So that's kind of uh, a very, very cool feature. Um, I, I, I know I mentioned I've... about oh, go stability. Ahead. You mentioned about stability. Then you mentioned about tokens going up and down. So what does stability mean to you? And how do you test for that? Because you also mentioned a lot of simulations to test for incentive compatibility to get the outcome, which I guess is stability. So what does stability yeah. mean to you and how do you test for that? 
So stability for me is just uh, that the token price does not wildly fluctuate from day to day. So like the variance, if you were to look at the intertemporal change, is, is relatively low, the variance of the token. Um, now, there are a bunch of different ways to measure uh, kind of volatility of an asset. There, you know, you could look at the amount of uh, volume traded on the marketplace compared to uh, the total market cap. You could look at, um, you know, the number of, uh, you could look at the second, uh, kind of the secondary, second order, uh, secondary orders on the market, what's buy outstanding, what's sell outstanding. Uh, so there are a bunch of different ways you can measure uh, volatility. Now, all, in, in, in necessarily by definition, uh, assets with low liquidity are going to be more volatile than assets with uh, huge liquidity because it takes less volume to massively change that, that tokens, um, or sorry, that assets price. So S&P 500 on a daily basis, it might move, you know, on a very crazy day, it might move 2%. A token in, the, in, in crypto, you know, it could move 20% in a day, and that would be pretty crazy, but not too out, you know, it's not outside of this, the realm of possibility. And that's because the market for people who want to own S&P 500 uh, 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 shares is absolutely um, astronomical compared to the crypto space. So you take a game like EVE Online and you create a cryptocurrency, that's going to be a much more stable currency. So we'll have stability as we have more players into the ecosystem because there's more volume, there's more liquidity uh, in the market for those tokens. Um, and then we'll also hopefully have stability in creating sustainable game economies. So we've seen relatively stable uh, token, or sorry, uh, resource prices, for example, uh, since we implemented that change. So there's two different sides of it. Obviously, you know, uh, having having a large player growth is going to bring some stability to this token so that a whale can't come in and just, you know, completely, you know, do something wild by putting in a big sell order or buy order. Um, but then also on the game design side of things, we're not, you know, accidentally creating some shock to the economy that makes the token go crazy because all of a sudden there's no iron ore in the economy, for example. Sorry, that was long-winded. Yeah. No, I, th I think that makes that makes a very good point because I think, to me, one the best measure of success for a good economics is managing stability. There will always be fluctuations. There will always be bull market, bear market, ups and downs, economic cycles, business cycles, and good economics anticipating that change and managing them before they they come. So it's really dampening it. It's not to manage, you know, stability is in stable coin and doesn't change, but it's to reduce the fluctuation because they provides predictability for users to manage their actions within the game in the long-term period. And I think that's a very important thing in games, especially that you don't see so much in say DeFi or infrastructure. Yes, absolutely. I think it matters a lot uh, which audience you're trying to cater to. And we are <clears throat> primarily trying to, to target this uh, mainstream gamer audience. That's a longer term objective of ours, but you know, in terms of segmentation, I yeah, genuinely, this is a bold statement, but genuinely believe global population could be interested in participating in Star Atlas in one way or another because um, economic opportunity is uh, is prevalent. But um, the gamers consider them the consumers; they need the reliability of um, their purchasing power within the game, and I think that's where you guys are referring to stability. If you're if you're talking to a play to earn um, mentality or that extraction mentality, of course. And they just want to get as much out of their time spent as they can. And then you have the trader speculator and the, all they care about is price go up, uh, which is what Chris was referring to. But how do you, you know, how do you tailor an experience that satisfies all of those individual interests? It's challenging and you just have to prioritize um, what you think is going to be most long-term successful. Great, great. And yeah, those are really interesting concepts. 
Um, I'm going to sidestep a little bit and talk about, I wanted to talk about this new um, feature or product that you guys are going to release in a few weeks or in the near future, basically this Stage Labs product. Can you briefly describe what Stage Labs is and how it fits in the entire Star Atlas ecosystem? I'll jump in with a description of the product, and it, it does help to preface here that <laughs> we are building a lot at Star Atlas. So we build across multiple environments. I think what we're most well known for is our flagship product, and that's the AAA cinematic quality game uh, MMO being developed in Unreal Engine 5. But we also have a browser-based application. We also have a mobile application, as well as a number of technical primitives that we've been really forced to build out of necessity so that we could execute on this idea of on-chain game logic. Well, Sage Labs slots into that middle category, which is the browser-based application. And why do we build browser? Uh, there were really two motivations. One was we could develop and deliver a product on a faster timeline than this AAA game that's going to take you know, maybe a decade to build, or uh, my perspective is that it's never really complete. Um, it, it constantly evolves, but nevertheless, getting to a V1 of that is going to take a substantial amount of time. So let's build something that we can execute on faster and get the economy activated. Um, but two, it also expands our market set to a wider audience. There's there's more people in the world that have access to a browser and internet than there are people that have access to a high-end gaming PC that is going to be a requisite for um, this AAA game that's being played. Now, Sage Labs uh, got its name Labs, ironically, because it was part of our developer testing environment. <laughs> uh, so it was really an experimental uh, building grounds for everything that we had anticipated to come out in a future release in browser. And what we've been able to do is go through and just uh, reformat this and clean up the UI and uh, prepare this for launch uh, with the expectation that it's coming out later this month. Now, I don't know uh, when the when this will be aired, but uh, we're, we're expecting sometime late August for release of Sage Labs. And um, maybe what, what I'll do is uh, I have a few images I could share here. And Chris, if you want to jump in and talk through some of the economic design that's included, I'll share some images and you can kind of speak over those. Yeah, so uh, that's that's kind of from a business perspective, that's where Sage Labs lies. Uh, from the more game economics point of view, what we're doing is we're, first of all, we have already a relatively... Uh, you would be surprised how robust our marketplace is for our score uh, gameplay loop, which is basically just a staking protocol. You put your ships in, you make sure they're fueled, and you're able to earn Atlas from that. That's the Atlas emissions curve. Um, and then we introduced an asset called a claim stake. And this is able to provide the fuel and the resources to the players to fuel their ships. Now, we had a product called Escape Velocity on the market for a little bit, and this allowed players to actually travel around a map and extract resources from that map in order to fuel their ships and score. Now, this was as simple as that sounds. It actually provided it provided a pretty robust market, um, at least robust market behavior. So, from our kind of analytics point of view, one of my favorite measurements is um, average volume per user generated on a marketplace, and this is a pretty big number. So, uh, depending on the the definition of uh, your I guess who goes in the denominator uh, for like the the daily active wallets. Uh, this is anywhere from ten dollars up to thirty, uh, up to almost forty dollars of volume generated in the marketplace on a daily basis. 
that's actually very large, um, at least from my research in the in the Web3 gaming space uh, for for most projects. So we have this very robust kind of market marketplace and uh, and a pretty simple economy. Sage Labs essentially takes that economy uh, and multiplies it by a hundred. So it's called Sage Labs. Uh, it's actually Sage. It's it's the precursor to Sage Rack, and Rack stands for Resource Extraction and Crafting. Uh, so resources are kind of the building blocks of our economy. And actually in this image, you can see these little dots. Those dots are locations on the map. Those are star systems. Now, around those star systems are mining points. Now, players are going to have to travel with their ships from each point on the map in order to extract resources from those mining points. Now, travel is expensive. Mining is expensive. Everything in this game, it's it's a very tight economic system. It's a very tight economic loop. You're not going to be able to just move from that bottom point on the map to the top point on the map in a matter of seconds or minutes. It's going to take you several hours. Uh, so this is a very tight game economy, and we believe that that's going to help to not only bolster the marketplace, but also introduce a very, very, you know, a huge complexity to the economic ecosystem of Star Atlas. So we still have score. We still have people with ships that are staked in score. What they have to do to play Sage is they have to take their ships out of score. So there's all of a sudden the labor force is going to shift from score into Sage, um, Sage Labs, and they're going to start producing. What that's going to do is it's going to cut down on the Atlas emissions curve, and it's going to increase the production of these assets. Now, once people have extracted these assets, they can craft it, those assets, those resources into more complex assets. So there probably is another, um, yeah, so we've got mineable assets in the sector. So here you're, you've got your asteroids um, and you've got a list of fleets and you're able to, uh, you're able to mine that asset for however long you'd like to until you run out of uh, resources in your ship. So it takes different resources in order to extract. It takes different resources in order to travel. It takes different resources to craft. So once you get to the crafting uh, section, which I think is over here. We don't, and we don't have an image, unfortunately, of the oh. actual uh, crafting section just yet, but I'm sure you can wing it here. Yeah. So there's a whole, once you're like, once you've got your materials and you're back at kind of base, um, you're going to have the opportunity to craft and you're going to have the opportunity to redeem. So the crafting uh, system is a part of the overall uh, Sage game economy. So, so Star Atlas is a obviously a complicated um, beast, and we've got this score product that's the very, very most basic version of the economy. We've got this Sage product, which is essentially taking that to the next level, and it's creating the economic framework for the game. This is where you're going to be able to use dozens of ships, hundreds of ships, and move around the ecosystem and mine for resources and extract and craft. Um, that is kind of the resource. That's kind of the uh, the production economies. And then the UE5 game is going to sit on top of that. And it's going to kind to, it, it, while we do plan on implementing all of those loops, all those economic loops in UE5, we anticipate UE5 to really be where the money is spent. So you've got this kind of underlying economic structure in Sage where people are producing stuff. And that's kind of fueling the really fun, engaging gameplay in UE5 with these hyper-realistic, sexy ships. So Sage Labs is, is kind of a step in that direction. It does not have the combat or the kind of uh, infrastructure building mechanic that the ultimate vision will have. It just has the production side of things. So there are sinks. There's the actual consumption of resources of your ship. And that is kind of what you're going to be sinking a lot of resources into, in, into creating these assets. But um, 
and this might be a good opportunity to talk about kind of this um this this golden ticket system that's uh that michael has has um kind of it's his brainchild um that kind of closes out the currently unclosed economic loop um, but i know i've kind of been uh just monologuing for a while so maybe i'll i'll stop and and wait for questions i might just yeah, expand go ahead as a, yeah i might just expand on that um briefly just just to uh again for more context for people who are not familiar with star atlas uh this is a stepping stone it is a building block towards the uh the browser-based product which is a full three-dimensional map it uses webgl assets we're building this in a uh, a browser-based engine called play canvas uh, where you have 3D models of all of your ships. It is a top-down real-time strategy game that focuses on um, this uh, this key component, which is resource extraction and crafting. Uh, but in the future, you're actually crafting star bases to capture territory. And then you're engaging in combat to take over and conquer other people's star bases. And so um, that's, that's the core loop. And I just wanted to mention here, because um, Chris brought up Unreal Engine, one of the really innovative and cool things about our method of development, uh, building this game logic on the blockchain, is that that ultimately becomes the backend game server, at least to a large degree, and specifically with respect to the economy. But it, what it means is that um, when actions are taken across any one of our individual environments, whether that's in mobile, in browser, or in Unreal Engine 5, to the extent those uh, front ends are calling upon the same backend logic, which is on Solana, uh, you'll see um, that synchronized across all environments. So just as a, as an example, if somebody is in MRZ5 here and they place down a new claim stake to start extracting resources, to the extent that, that coordinate is reflected and represented in Unreal Engine 5, you would see that asset populate in UE5 as well. And I, I think this is just totally world-changing where you can essentially have a single game server backend that runs on the blockchain and populates to any number of front ends. It also means, um, just as a final point, that Anybody can use the game logic that we're building, these smart contracts on chain, and build their own front end and leverage the same assets, the same resources, the same mechanisms that we have built, and they can create their own experience. And because of that, Star Atlas becomes much more of a development platform, a true ecosystem, than just a gaming product. Even though our specific focus is on building this great experience, it opens up a world of opportunity for developers to build around the idea of Star Atlas as well. And you mentioned that basically these the resources that you get through the Sage Labs game loops through this platform, the web-based browser, all that get will also be interoperable with your main engine or your main game, the heavenly uh, a real engine based game, right? That's right. Is that yep. Yeah. No, I, one of the other things we we've um, already built is. Uh, trying not to get too technical, but a, a, a Web3.js library. It was developed in C++. Uh, we use this. It's called the Foundation SDK, Software Development Kit. We use that to build the first Solana wallet integration into Unreal Engine 5. We've also used that um, uh, as a code base to integrate our Web3 marketplace completely into Unreal Engine 5. It works with you know any Solana wallet. It works with a Ledger hardware wallet as well. So um, uh, you... Once again, you're you're calling upon all of the exact same assets. It doesn't matter where they were generated. They are assets that are uh, recognized throughout the ecosystem. Cool, great, great. That's that's no, that's something that is really 
passionate ahead of its time and really something to look forward to if you're part of the Star Atlas community. And probably before we end this um, podcast or this session, this episode, maybe you can briefly talk about that golden ticket event that you mentioned before we um, formally close this episode. So the 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 naming is all uh, Michael. So he's uh, he's uh, uh, Willy Wonka. But I think he I think he's embarrassed though that he doesn't want to take any credit. <laughs> I I uh, you know I, I'm not a branding person, so I have no comment. But uh, l- l- let me add l- let me add one more context, and then Chris go into the actual economics. But the um, so Sage we've been referring to Sage. It stands for Star Atlas Golden Era, uh, and that is the b- browser product. So the golden tickets is a little. Spin on golden era. See, I didn't even know that, so we need a disclaimer. <laughs> but um, yeah, so so this this uh, this Sage Labs is our first iteration of the economy. I'm really excited to see it come to life because, as I said, we've made some very minor changes to our economy. For example, allowing players to produce their own resources and sell those on the marketplace, um, or introducing score, kind of these like very seemingly um, innocuous gameplay changes or game economy changes, and they've resulted in pretty significant changes in the overall ecosystem. The volume traded on the marketplace, um, our Twitter analytics—you know, different, different like kind of uh, KPIs that we care about—have um, seen pretty massive changes just due to these small things. So I'm very excited about the the labs implementation. I think it's going to create a much more robust uh, labor market, a much more robust market uh, market for our assets. Um, and you know, I could talk for hours about the labor market in Sage Labs. There are going to be three kind of main things that people are doing, uh, three different kind of careers that you could take on. And I mentioned that it's very uh, a very tight economy. And so I think that this is going to feel very tight for most players. If you've got a massive fleet, you're probably going to be producing like crazy and you're not going to have too much constraint. Or you can have three different operations going to complete all three of the different uh, mechanics. But the key to making a good game economy is to especially one where you want to have a healthy marketplace is to introduce specialization into your marketplace if everybody can do everything they need to do why do we need to trade so i wanted to make sure or what we wanted to do is make sure that this game was tight and it felt like okay i really have to focus on one thing or the other i can't do both of them and for most players this is going to be true now we've got this seemingly healthy economy this seemingly healthy marketplace but we're creating all these assets and we haven't put in the destruction loop yet. We haven't kind of closed this whole thing up. We haven't put a bow tie on the Sage economy. What happens when somebody crafts something? They've just got this so-called, we have uh, an asset called a radiation absorber. They've got a radiation absorber. What do they do with it? Well, at first they might throw it on the marketplace. People think it's fun. They might buy it. That might have some sort of price, but eventually the inflation or sorry, the, the, the quantity of these assets is going to skyrocket. They're just going to be keep building up people's uh, wallets. Now, one could say that's okay because we're going to eventually implement the destruction of those assets, but we didn't want to risk having these things just building up and building up and building up and losing value. So we implemented um, kind of a closed close loop through asset redemption. So we have a whole bunch of NFTs that our players absolutely love. Um, it can't be emphasized enough how passionate the stylist community is for our assets. Like, I, you know, it just defies all logic how how amazing our community is and, and how passionate they are for this project. So one of the things that we, you know, we've decided to do, and, and, you know, this is, like I said, this is Michael's brainchild is like, well, you guys are going to be playing our game. How do you feel about getting ships as a reward? And 
obviously rewarding ships and rewarding NFTs isn't sustainable in the super long run, but it is definitely sustainable in the medium term while we're still building out this ecosystem and our player numbers are going to be growing. Uh, we anticipate to see a significant jump in player numbers once we release Sage Labs, just like we did for Sage Escape Velocity, which was a very, very simple program. Sage Labs is an actual complete economic loop, especially with this kind of NFT redemption program. So players are going to be slowly, I, I want to emphasize how difficult it is to actually acquire one of these redeemed ships. It is the ultimate sink, but no one person is going to go out and be able to produce like a $100 ship in a weekend. It's going to take them many, many, many hours to do this. Um, uh, probably to the dismay of most of the game designers and, and engineers on the team. I'm an extremely, uh, I'm a huge curmudgeon when it comes to giving away our assets. Um, so what we've done is with this labor market, we've created this very harsh kind of uh, closed loop where you can actually, if you are one of the lucky ones who's been able to accumulate these resources now, you could potentially do that through your own pure labor. You know, you've got a big fleet, you go out, you extract a bunch of stuff, you craft a bunch of stuff, or you can find it on the marketplace. So there's going to be a lot of market demand for different resources and assets. Um, and then you redeem those for ships. Now this 1.5 million golden ticket, only 300,000 of that. And when we say 1.5 million, we're talking about VWAP, the actual um, price, the mark, the primary price of the ship on our marketplace. So if you went out and you wanted to buy a ship from us, you'd pay, you know, $200 or something like that. That's the price we're talking about. Only 300 of that is this redemption. 1.2 million of it is um, actually kind of a, a raffle system, so to speak, uh, that we've designed. So what players can do is instead of this very slow kind of grindy acquiring NFTs as a reward for the medium term, they can turn in their assets. They have a very complicated recipe of different assets they've had to acquire. They can turn in that for what's called a golden ticket, a GT. And GTs are going to be put towards this weekly raffle, um, you know, and we're going to have a certain amount of value in each of those, uh, each of those raffle pools. And players can contribute as many GTs as they would like in order to try to, you know, put their chances at winning. So this is kind of a this is a mechanic that I think is very in right now, especially in the, uh, in the, the web three community. You know, you think about the heist that just came out. Uh, you know, I don't, I'm not going to throw shade, but you, you think about Sage labs and how incredible, like how pretty complicated this labor market is. And the fact that we have just kind of casually built in a similar kind of risk loving fun, um, raffle system. So I like to think of it as pretty much an infinite uh, resource sink. You know, every additional ticket is worth something. And the players can say, well, do I want to spend my time producing ships or do I want to spend my time producing golden tickets? Because the golden tickets give me this exciting kind of opportunity. You know, I'm going to have, you know, a 1% chance of, of winning something. Um, so that's that's what the campaign is about. Um, again, it's not necessary. You know, this is none of these are our long term goals. These are just kind of temporary intermediate term uh, uh, programs that we're implementing in order to set up the full economy once we actually have the, the game loop. One final thing, because I know we're kind of over here, that this allows us to do is very, very simply with very little technical lift, it allows us to introduce Atlas earnings and Sage. So players are having to shift their their ships from uh, score into Sage in order to play Sage. And what that's going to do is it's going to drop that Atlas emissions curve, like I was saying before. And what we want to do is slowly and methodically introduce Atlas earnings in Sage. Um, 
so that when a new player comes in, they can start playing stage and they can start actually earning Atlas by, um, you know, producing a golden ticket or sorry, uh, by producing this very complicated recipe that gives them Atlas. So it's a really cool mechanism that allows us the crafting mechanism, the crafting blockchain protocol is an extremely, uh, it's surprisingly robust mechanism that gives us a lot of options in terms of gameplay mechanics. Um, it's really interesting to see how each and every single one of these blockchain programs we design can be used in many different ways. For example, these redemptions, you know, we have so we can, we can introduce Sage Atlas emissions with just the simple crafting protocols, uh, which is really cool to see. And if I can just put on my promotional hat just for one moment here, <laughs> uh, I am super excited about the, the golden ticket raffle system, but <clears throat> we didn't get into any level of detail around asset, uh, the, the wide variety of asset pricing. And we did want to tailor our um, uh, galactic asset offering, the NFT sales to a very wide audience, which means we sell ships that are as cheap as $15. We've sold ships that are as expensive as $110,000. So really, depending on your appetite for uh, participation within the game, you can select anywhere in between there. There's an entire scale. But uh, in this raffle process, the opportunity would exist for somebody to win, say, a $100,000 ship. And for the person that maybe is putting a few hours in with a, with a small fleet, that is a massive opportunity for them to participate in, in earning one of these assets that they can then employ later in the game. So uh, of course, there will be a, a wide uh, set of less valuable assets that will be distributed as well. But the chance for a, a big win, I think, is attractive to a lot of people. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much for telling us more about Sage Labs, the economics behind it. And probably as a way to wrap up the session, um, probably some last thoughts, on, especially for the game developers that are listening. What do you want to impart on them as they build out their own Web3 game economy as well. And Lisa, you might be able to want to start on this discussion. I think, I think the, the one advice is don't think about building the full be all and all economy. I think it's good to have that in mind, but also understand that it's okay if you don't have the entire thing built up. Economy in this world is part of design. And with design, there's no perfection. It's constantly iterative and just improve as you go and do a lot of back testing with the users with actual data and not base everything on simulations because yes, you can create beautiful agent-based simulations, but still based on assumptions. And if your assumptions are wrong, you spend two months building this really, really complex model, the output will not be any more meaningful than you flipping a, uh, flipping a coin. So just bear that in mind, just don't go overboard with the simulation side of things and focus on building, speaking to users and building together, iterating together with the product. Yeah. Uh, 100%. Like a small, tiny little MVP is going to give you way more insight than any complex simulation. When I've been trying to simulate what uh, labs is going to look like, uh, the the difference in the outcomes is wildly different depending on the preferences that I give the players. I 100% agree. Uh, again, I think um, this is probably off off rail from any economic advice I would provide, but the, and it might sound cliche, but you know, community is your biggest asset in web three. And it's like, we don't think of community as our users or our customers, but they're deeply involved in the discussion, decision-making process, acquiring feedback from them and modifying what we release going into the future. So, um, I would certainly emphasize, uh, 
catering to your community while still delivering upon your vision. Um, uh, and, you know, of course, Star Atlas is a highly complex economic system and game that is intended to survive the test of time. I, I envision this lasting for hundreds of years, uh, partially through this governance structure that allows you know future developers to pick up the torch and develop the future iterations of this. But obviously, not every game has that ambition or that motivation. So um, you know, it, it's built to suit, so to speak. Okay, and that's all the time we have for this episode. Lisa, Michael, Chris, thank you, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedules and joining us for this episode of Economics Design Podcast. And to those listening, if you found this episode useful, probably take a look at the other episodes we have in this podcast sessions or in this podcast series and see if you can pick up other lessons as well. And with that, again, Lisa, Michael, Chris, thank you. And this is the end of the session. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. Great.